Awesome. Thank you. Good job, worship band. I'm always very impressed because that is certainly not a skill set that I have to be up here. So I always try to make sure to say thank you because if I was up here by myself, I would not do nearly as good doing that. Um, well, like Rachel said, uh, Brian's not here today, uh, so I'm not the guy who's regularly, regularly here. Uh, my name is Warren. Uh, I help with the college ministry here uh, and on occasion get asked to come speak up here. I guess I haven't said anything too crazy uh, from up here yet, so they keep asking me to come back for some reason. Um, today we're going to be talking through uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, it's from the book of Psalms. Uh, the book of Psalms uh, has throughout church history been called by many people the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, the reason for that is that in these psalms, uh, we see the prayers and hymns that the church has used throughout history. In fact, that's what psalms means. It's these, these prayers, these spiritual hymns addressed to God. Um, for some context, most of the psalms uh, were written by David. Uh, he was a guy who was the king of Israel uh, in ancient times, uh, probably one of the most notable and famous kings in Israelite history. Uh, you, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're probably at least familiar with a David and Goliath type scenario. We, we talk all the time about, you know, the underdog versus uh, the top dog, uh, David and Goliath scenario. That's the same guy. Uh, so David, this king, had a really tight relationship with God. He, he had a lot of personal, intimate, strong feelings uh, of being united with God. Uh, and so he was a prolific author and wrote a variety of psalms throughout his entire life. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at some of those psalms. Today we're going to be looking at a particular type of those psalms. Um, but before we actually dive too deep into that, I would like to pray really quickly uh, and just invite God into this place uh, and invite him to speak through his word uh, and impact us. Uh, so if you join me in prayer. Father God, uh, we just want to thank you uh, for the words of King David, uh, for the way that you have chosen to use them uh, to impact our lives uh, and to mold us to your image. As we read uh, the words of David and as we understand his heart and his relationship with you, um, would you make us see the world as he sees it and would you make our hearts change uh, like you changed his heart? Um, glorify yourself in us as we read your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So like I was saying, uh, David wrote a variety of psalms throughout his entire life. Uh, he was a really prolific author, uh, and he wrote a variety of different types of psalms from different perspectives. Uh, some were psalms of rejoicing. Uh, we looked at Psalm 16 uh, the last time I spoke here. Uh, that was a song of a psalm of joy. Uh, some psalms are psalms of suffering, you know, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? Uh, and others are psalms of wonder, you know, David looking at creation and being astounded by, by the stars and the heavens and the mountains around him. Uh, but one of these categories uh, is what has traditionally been called penitential psalms uh, or psalms of guilt, right? Uh, psalms where David is expressing remorse, remorse or penance for sin that he's committed. Uh, in these psalms, uh, the distress, the affliction, the, the antagonist, you could say, of the psalm uh, 
is the psalmist's own sins, the author's own sins. Uh, he is lamenting uh, as a confession for sin. Uh, traditionally, in this category of penitential psalms, uh, that includes Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, uh, which is where we're going to be, Psalm 51. That's why I bring these up. Uh, Psalm 102, 130, and 143. Uh, I just rattled them off, uh, not so that you could memorize them, but to point out, there's only seven of them. If you open the book of Psalm, there's grand total 150 chapters, longest book of the Bible. Uh, like I said, David wrote a lot. Uh, and of those 150 psalms, only seven of them are devoted to repentance. And not that he doesn't bring up repentance in other psalms, but only seven are solely focused on this repentant nature. That's kind of shocking. I don't know about you, but that's kind of surprisingly few. Uh, when we picture penance, when we picture repentance in our mind, our human instinct is to think of these long acts of contrition and, and mournful apologies and long periods of uh, regrowing that trust, right? I would think if I was writing 150 psalms uh, that I would dedicate more time to getting right with God, right? Uh, that's how we handle things, but not how God handles things. In the psalms, uh, and you especially see this fulfilled in the New Testament, Forgiveness is seen as the confident guarantee of the follower of God. There's an assurance that we will be forgiven. Even the Lord's Prayer, where Christ teaches us how to pray, only includes four words about forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. That's all it takes, right? That's all the focus that it takes to be forgiven. And then even after that, immediately, Christ follows it up with an object lesson about how we should forgive our debtors. You know, we receive forgiveness so that we can forgive others. And so you don't need these long, drawn-out uh, 100 psalms about repentance in order to receive the forgiveness. You see, the purpose of Christianity and the purpose of the church is not to try to beat us down into guilt and shame, uh, trying to coerce us uh, out of this feeling of guilt to be better people. Uh, a lot of us might feel that way. A lot of us might feel that the church is there to just to bring up this sin and shame over and over. Uh, but that's not really what it's about. Um, and if that is how you see the church, and if that is how you've seen things, uh, that hasn't been a representation of what the Bible views the church as. And so I apologize for that. Because you see, as Christians, we understand that our relationship with God is not about doing good. It's not about trying to impress him. It's not out of trying to do good because we fear hell and want to avoid the fire. Instead, we have a God in the Bible who saw us in our sins. He saw our inability to save ourselves, and he acted. He stepped into our world. He lived a life without sin. He died on the cross to pay the debt for our sins, uh, and he rose again with the offer of new life. That's entirely outside of our control, outside of what we did, outside of what we could do to earn God's favor. So now we have the opportunity, we have the, the opening uh, to stand before God, not on our own deeds, right? We're not going to be holding up the scales of justice and seeing how our deeds line up. Instead, when God looks at us on judgment day, 
if we've put our faith in Christ, he'll see the righteousness of Christ. He'll see the righteousness of his son who lived that perfect life for us. As Romans 8, uh, 8 verse 1 says, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, there is now no condemnation, zero percent, none. It's not Jesus does some, you do the rest. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. That is good news. That is what gospel means, good news. But let's not be mistaken here, right? Uh, even though it says there is now no condemnation, and I firmly stand by that. I'm not changing what I said earlier. Uh, that doesn't mean there is now no sin. Even though we are Christians, even though there is now no condemnation, the, the forever consequence of sin, hell, is no longer where we are heading. Even though we have that new heart, that new spirit that Christ has changed in us, we still sin. In fact, in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 8, uh, the Apostle John writes uh, that if we say that we have no sin in our hearts, we're only lying to ourselves. We're only deceiving ourselves. Christians are not perfect people. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus doesn't mean you're done with sin. I wish that's how it worked. Uh, sin is not very fun. Uh, I personally don't like sinning, but I find myself doing it over and over again. And if I try to deny that, then I'm only deceiving myself. Being a Christian doesn't mean you suddenly stop sinning. Though our inward spirit uh, is changed toward God, our hearts and our minds still need to learn what it means to walk in that newness of life. We have a spirit that is willing, but we have mind, heart, and body that don't quite know how to walk yet. So if that's the case, if, if the case is uh, that there is no condemnation, but we still sin, uh, what is the point of these penitential psalms? Uh, what's the point of feeling guilt for that matter if there is no condemnation? Well, Paul uh, tells us in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 10, and I think this is a really good key verse for understanding why we have these penitential psalms today. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Uh, Paul talks about this uh, worldly grief. Uh, I would call that worldly guilt, right? This feeling of guilt that you have, this grief over sins that you have committed. He says that it leads to death, and I think what he means by that is it leads to hopelessness. It leads to despair. It kills your soul, right? Worldly guilt tells you that you did something wrong, so you know that something wrong was done, but it doesn't tell you how to fix it or how to get rid of the weight. It's an alarm bell without an instruction manual telling you what to do about that alarm bell. That just produces stress. That just produces anxiety. Uh, it produces death for your soul. There's so many people walking around with the weight of guilt on their shoulders, so much guilt that they can't comprehend the gift, the offer of a better life. They know what they have done, and they come to believe that they, be they deserve the worst in life. How could Jesus ever forgive me? I deserve to be where I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. But that's not how God wants us to live life. And that's not how God wants us to deal with guilt. Remember, something has been done to get rid of that weight. Something has been done to turn off that alarm bell. Christ died on the cross for that very burden of guilt 
that so many of us are carrying around in our lives. Forgiveness has been guaranteed. There is no condemnation. So now guilt, or as Paul calls it, the godly grief, is instead a different purpose. And I think that purpose, what Paul is touching on, is to be a teacher for our lives. In physiology, you know, in talking about the human body, uh, you can talk about chronic pain or you can talk about acute pain. These are two different kinds of pain. A chronic pain is a lasting, persistent pain that lingers with you. It's with you all the time. Uh, it follows you and it never leaves. If you're sleeping, if you're eating, if you're watching TV, it's always just lingering in the background and you're always aware that elbow isn't quite what it used to be, right? Acute pain, on the other hand, arises from more situational occasions. If you touch a hot stove, you feel the burning sting, and you know to pull your hand away. That's the purpose of acute pain. You've learned a valuable lesson. Touching stove, not good. <laughs> That's what godly guilt is about, or this godly grief that Paul talks about. We've learned, we've felt, we've personally experienced that sin is not good for our relationship with Christ, for our inward spirit. And so the goal is to quickly pull that hand away, like from a hot stove. I think that's the purpose of godly grief, that godly guilt in our heart, is to learn that valuable lesson. Sin, not good. Pull away, pull away, pull back. Uh, in talking about uh, Psalm 51, uh, there's a pastor, John Piper, who gave a really good word, um, and I think he summarizes it really well. Uh, he says, what makes a person a Christian is not that he doesn't get discouraged, and it's not that he doesn't sin and feel miserable about it. What makes, a what makes a person Christian is that connection he has with Jesus Christ, and that shapes how he thinks and how he feels, even about his discouragement and his sin and his guilt. We learn from the Psalms how to think about discouragement and guilt, and we learn from the Psalms how to feel in those times of disappointment and times of horrible regret. The Psalms show us how to be discouraged well and how to regret well. That sounds a little funny, right? How to be discouraged well, how to regret well. But I think he's talking on what Paul spoke about. There is a godly grief that leads to repentance, and then there's a worldly grief that leads to death. And so the importance of these psalms, uh, which I mentioned earlier, is a prayer book of the Bible. The importance of praying in these psalms, the lesson that we get from these, especially penitential psalms, is not expressing what we want uh, as if we were the focus, as if our needs were in the center, but rather the change in our spirit that occurs as we pray through these psalms. We learn to uh, regret well. We learn to repent well. We learn to praise well. This pr these prayers are not about our own needs. God already knows our needs. Uh, before you speak them, before you think them, before you even know them, God knows your needs. A lot of people take this approach to prayer thinking that, you know, our needs are in the focus. Um, and so they end up not praying because you know, well, if God already knows what I'm going to say, what's the point of praying at all? He knows everything, right? If it was entirely about our needs, we would only probably pray, give us this day our daily bread. That's it. I, I don't know about you, but if I was only focused on myself, and if, I, if that was what I understood prayer to be, 
there wouldn't be a need for the rest of the Lord's Prayer. It would just be, give me what I need. But God has another purpose for prayer. In prayer, we align our spirits with Christ. We accompany him before the Father, and we become molded to his image. Our very inward being, our spirit, is transformed when we pray, and we learn to experience humanity in Christ-likeness. Prayer, then, is not just the heart expressing itself, but rather the heart speaking with God by both addressing him and listening to him. Children learn to speak by repeating what their parents say. And so when we pray the Psalms, we listen to what God has to say, and we repeat God's own words back to him, not so that he can hear something new, but so that our spirits can be changed to his image. That's the goal, to learn the spiritual speech of Christ, to learn his words and learn to speak them ourselves. This is a clear and pure speech, refined by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not the false speech and confused speech that often comes from our heart. As you read the Psalms, and especially as you read this particular Psalm, don't just study these words. Don't just treat them academically. Read them, digest them, repeat them, make them your own. These Psalms, these prayers were not written to be poetic or beautiful, though I think they are poetic and I think they are beautiful, but that wasn't the purpose. The purpose here is not art. The purpose here is for them to become your prayer and to change your spirit towards Christ. So with this in mind, uh, let's listen to Psalm 51. We're finally getting there uh, and see how to properly handle and confess our guilt in a way that leads to a deeper relationship with God. So uh, at the beginning of the Psalm, uh, before we even get to verse one, you'll see in your Bible a little header at the top. Uh, and it should say something like this, uh, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Unlike many of the Psalms, uh, with Psalm 51, we can pinpoint the exact historical context of when this took place. We understand the reason that David wrote it. Uh, some of the Psalms, we, we have guesses about why they were written, what the purpose was, but with this one, we know exactly what was going on. From earlier, I mentioned King David. Uh, I mentioned that he was a pretty upstanding guy. He was king, he was prophet, he had a close, intimate relationship with God. Uh, so if you don't know anything else about him, you would think that he is a great protagonist. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but David was a guy, a guy with a lot of power. And as we all know, power tends to corrupt. Um, and so, yes, he did a lot of good, but he also did some really bad things. Uh, and one of the stories of his most public failures uh, takes place in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. And yes, this particular failing really does take two chapters to unpack. Uh, but I'm not going to read both chapters. I'll just read the beginning of it, how it started, um, from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. Uh, in, in these verses, we're told, uh, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking uh, on the roof of the king's house. He looked and saw uh, from the roof a woman bathing in her house, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and uh, one of his servants said, Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, and they took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. 
Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she told David, I am pregnant. So if you don't know anything else about David, if you've never heard this story before, that's quite a bit to take in. And, and even if you have heard this story before, even if you are familiar with David and Bathsheba, I want you to still take it all in as if it's new. The king of Israel used all of his royal authority and power to have his guys, to have his goons, go and forcibly take a married woman from her own home, a woman who was married to one of his best soldiers, a guy who was actually described as one of David's friends. Uh, he slept with her and got her pregnant. That's already really bad. Just from those four verses that we read, that's already rough. But it gets worse. As you keep reading the chapter, uh, you, you enter into intrigue and conspiracy and murder because he tries to cover up his sin by calling Uriah, the husband. He calls him back from the war uh, so that he can go sleep with his wife. You know, he gives him a bunch of wine, he gets Uriah drunk, and he tries to say, hey, uh, go sleep with your wife. Uh, you've, you've earned it, buddy. Go, go enjoy a good time. Uriah, though, doesn't want to dishonor God and his fellow soldiers who are currently still on the battlefield. Why should I get the cushiony life? Why should I get a night of vacation when my buddies are out there sleeping on the ground? No, I'm not going to do that. So he goes back to the battlefield without David being able to cover up or tie up his loose ends. So David decides to do the next best thing and have his men murder Uriah. Talk about tying up loose ends, right? David is doing everything he can to cover up his tracks. So he orders his men to abandon Uriah on the battlefield and let the enemy just slaughter him. He hastily marries Bathsheba, uh, and the pregnancy looks like it was legit. If you didn't know any better, from man's perspective, everything was covered up, everything was good. I'm sure David breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> it's all good, right? But it wasn't. See, this is the reason cover-ups don't work. Uh, the end of chapter 11 contains what I think is the understatement of at least this whole story, maybe the understatement of the Bible. Uh, but the end of chapter 11 says, the thing that David had done displeased God. If we're just saying, oh, that displeased God, I think that's the mildest way of putting it. <laughs> if I was writing this story, I would have said something much stronger about God's emotional response to this. God saw the sin and he saw what happened. Man, man might not have seen it. David might have thought he got away with it, but God always saw it. So God sent a prophet to talk to the king and that's Nathan who gets mentioned in, in the beginning of these uh, verses. And so here, in the midst of this story of, of lust, of murder, of coerced sex, of conspiracy, we find this incredible psalm of repentance. That word repentance is a bit funny. We rarely use it in our modern language. Uh, but I think one of the best and most striking definitions of repentance is simply a turning around. You've probably seen the illustration before, you know, um, you've probably had different preachers, and if you haven't, then I'll be that preacher. You know, you talk about driving a car one way, and then you pop a U-turn, and you turn all the way around, and that's repentance, a complete 180. Uh, if you've seen a preacher do that before, then I'm just one of a hundred who's done it. If this is your first time, congratulations. I've now done it. I've now become the cliche. <laughs> but I think we can be more specific than just turning around, more specific than just a 180. Uh, because we can turn away from one sin and walk straight into another. Uh, like David fixing his sin of adultery 
by murdering Uriah. Uh, you can turn from one place and go a hundred different directions. I think what's important about repentance is not turning away from sin, but rather turning toward Christ. I think that's key. So with that in mind, uh, let's actually read Psalm 51. I know I've talked about it forever. We haven't actually read it yet. Uh, but let's read Psalm 51 to see three marks of repentant prayer as we realign ourselves towards Christ, as we turn away from sin and toward him. So three marks of uh, truly repentant prayer. First, a prayer of true repentance must come from a right understanding of God, and particularly a right understanding of our relationship with God. Let's look at verses one and two. David starts by saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sins. David begins by appealing to God's nature. David lays himself out totally. He's helpless, completely at the mercy of God. He doesn't try to bargain with God. He doesn't try to say, hey God, since I'm such an awesome, upstanding guy, you know, since I killed Goliath for you, uh, hey, you should forgive me. No, instead he calls on the steadfast love of God for his abundant mercy to come into action. David knew scripture and what scripture had to say about God. In Exodus 34, six through seven, which David surely read, uh, we read God's personal revelation about who he is. And so it says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. David knew that God was merciful, gracious, slow to anger, loving, and faithful. He knew this because he knew scripture and had personally seen in his own life the abundant mercies of God that God had previously shown in his own life. David knew God both biblically and personally. But this isn't David just expecting or demanding forgiveness from God, simply because God had shown forgiveness in the past. God showing forgiveness in the past does not guarantee that he is under any obligation to show forgiveness today. Uh, instead, I want to point out uh, a Hebrew word that gets used here, uh, and my translation is translated to steadfast love. Uh, it's also sometimes translating as loving kindness. Uh, as one word, loving kindness, uh, we actually sang a song that includes uh, the word loving kindness. And then through the darkness, your loving kindness. Now, we, we sang that earlier, right? Um, the Hebrew word for that is actually hesed. And it refers to a loyal love based on a covenant, based on an oath of relationship. This word gets used about 250 times uh, in the Old Testament, uh, including here in verse 1. And it doesn't rely on a two-way street. It doesn't rely on if we are personally worthy, then he will love us. If that were the case, we'd be in some serious trouble because we fail. We do not uphold our end of the two-way street. Uh, rather, it's a one-way street. If we are God's people, he will be faithful in his loving kindness. Today, that means 
uh, turning without a single claim of righteousness in ourself, without a single demand of, I deserve to be forgiven, to Christ alone, whose blood seals the covenant of hesed, of loving kindness, of relationship with God. It's only because of this relationship that we can begin to experience his forgiveness. The God of the Bible is not interested in what we can do for him or what we can do to impress him, as if any gift could ever earn favor or forgiveness from the God who made the whole universe. God doesn't send us godly grief, godly guilt, so that we can feel obligated toward him. Rather, as we experience guilt and regret, we must seek repentance because we want to restore that relationship that has said with God. Only then, only when we begin to understand this in terms of relationship and not a transaction, can we truly repent. Second, uh, a prayer of true repentance must include a heart that has a right response towards God's holiness. Our heart has to have a right response. We read in uh, verses three through eight, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, so that I may be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David recognizes that sin is a truly evil thing, it's not just a misstep. It's not just an accident. In verse 4, David says that his sin is against God and God alone. Really, David? I mean, I can see Uriah's dead body there on the ground and Bathsheba crying in a corner after what was done to her. How can David say that his actions were against God and against God alone? What David is saying is not that his actions towards others were inconsequential. He's not saying that they weren't bad. Rather, he's saying that what made his action sin is that it is against God. Yes, other people were hurt by David's actions, and let's not pretend that that's not the case. But that's not the eternal horror that makes something sin. Sin is a rebellion against God's holiness and an assault on God himself. Holiness, that's another one of those funny words that we don't use very often in our modern language. Uh, but it means something is set apart. Uh, but not just in the sense that something is set apart different. Rather, it defines something that is set apart for a greater purpose. Or you might say it's a cut above, right? You have water, and then you have holy water. You have days, and then you have holidays, right? Ho holidays, uh, as we've come to shorten the word. Uh, whenever the Bible speaks of God's holiness, the Bible is referring to his exceeding majesty, to his total trans transcendence over creation, his superiority over anything in the universe. Morally speaking, he is excellent. He is blameless. He is the origin point of all righteousness. David understood that God's holiness was a beautiful and wonderful thing, the only true good that anyone can have. That's why in Psalm 16, verse 1, David writes, 
I have no good apart from the Lord. So to act contrary to this holiness, especially when David was God's chosen prophet and king, was a really serious deal. We can only understand David's words when we understand that his reaction came from a heart that rightly estimated the amount of holiness God had. See the change that this understanding has produced in David's heart. Before he tried to cover up his sin in any way that he could, he brought Uriah home from battle, and then when that didn't work, he had the man killed. He tried to cover up every loose end uh, to make sure no one knew his crime, but God saw it. And what does it say? The thing he had done displeased the Lord. But now, now that he's been confronted with how truly evil and ugly his sin is, David's heart is changing. He doesn't try to shift the blame or make excuses based on his circumstance. He, the buck stops here. David's accepting full responsibility. Verse 3 says, I know my transgression. He admits his sin. He confesses everything. He hides nothing. He lays himself entirely at God's feet, admitting in verse 5 that even from the womb, he is in sin. He has nothing to bring. He is bringing nothing to the table. But notice here that this isn't just him acknowledging that he has done wrong. This isn't an academic theory or a theological discussion about uh, total depravity. David's right estimation of God's holiness led him beyond an intellectual assent and to a right reaction to the sin in his life. Because David sees how holy God is, and because he rightly understands the beauty of God's holiness, he understands that his sin is truly disgusting and polluting. This sin haunted him, remaining ever before him in verse 3. He feels himself utterly filthy and asks over and over for cleansing. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me from sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, wash me. Verse 9, blot out my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. This is the cry of a man who's truly broken for the sin in his life. He understood that sin was an ugly, horrible thing that broke his relationship with God, and so he weeps over it. And yet, even in all of this, even with all this brokenness going inside, David's repentant heart is focused on God and not on himself. Sin isn't bad because it makes me feel guilty. Sin is bad because it belittles God. Not only does David have a right estimate of God's holiness, not only does he have a right heart reaction to the sin in his life, he also has a right motive in repenting. Repentance is not about feeling guilty over wrongdoing or mistakes. It's about total awe and wonder at the holiness of God and wanting to turn around because we love that. Verse 4 ends with David declaring that God will be justified and blameless in his word and in his judgment. With this confession, David affirms that what's most important is God's justice and God's holiness. Even when David failed and broke the law, God's law remains good. That's why David's able to rejoice in verse 8. The Lord broke his bones. That's not something you rejoice in normally. He brought judgment and guilt upon David, and yet David is rejoicing. How? Because David sees and David recognized that what's most important is not his own guilt, it's not his own suffering, but rather is God's plan for glory to change him and make him anew in his inward being. That's what he says in verse 6. 
that God is changing his inward being. God is planting seeds of truth. God is bringing up wisdom in him. David's able to see beyond his own suffering and to the plan that God has for him. So we see that a right response to the holiness, cons- holiness of God consists first of a right estimate of God's holiness, second, a right reaction to sin, and finally, a right motive for repentance. When we have this response in our spirit, we can begin to show the godly grief that Paul described, which leads to salvation, a renewed relationship with God, and not to the death of hopelessness and despair. The final element of true repentance uh, is a commitment to right conduct in God's presence. And I want to be very careful with my wording here uh, and avoid saying that repentance is not true unless we have right conduct in God's presence. I've heard from some people, some people have said, repentance isn't true unless you never go back and commit that sin again. If this was the case, I personally think true repentance would be impossible. There is no way on earth uh, that you can leave behind sin and never go back to any sin again. That goes back into what we were saying earlier about none of us are perfect, even when we become new creatures. Even when we have that heartfelt response of repentance, even when we, in our heart, know that we've done wrong and despise that sin and never want to do it again, we still inevitably turn back to sin. So commitment, then, becomes a very important word. We've made a commitment to right conduct in God's presence. Even though we can't possibly be perfect in our walk in holiness, we make a commitment, we express a desire, we make a plan to walk in right conduct before God. Our spirit has a desire to walk towards the good, even if we fail and even if we don't do it perfectly. With that in mind, let's finish out the rest of the chapter and see David's commitment to this new life. Starting in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings, and the bulls will be offered on your altar." As human beings, our actions flow from our heart, and more specifically, what our heart desires and what our heart treasures. Sinful actions are a symptom of a much deeper disease. It's interesting to note here uh, that David never prays about sex or lust. Uh, If it wasn't for the header that we read at the beginning, we'd have no way to pinpoint this particular psalm to the story of Bathsheba or Uriah. But David recognized that the issue wasn't he had wandering lustful eyes, uh, but rather a sinful, flesh-treasuring heart. David found his treasure in the world and in the flesh, and so his heart led him down the path of adultery, the path of conspiracy, the path of murder. So rather than making empty promises to God saying, I'll never do this again, or this is the last time, 
David begs God to change his heart, to change his desire, to change his treasure, to transform him from the inside first and then have it work its way out. Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David is not asking only for a new spirit, but ask for God to restore to me the joy of your salvation. Joy for salvation, delight in holiness, treasure in God, comes when God changes that heart. He changes not only the symptom on the outside, but the spirit on the inside. Only then can he begin to walk in right conduct, committing himself to God. And what exactly does David commit? Quite frankly, everything he has, all of himself, nothing is held back. David commits uh, to bring all of himself, no strings attached. He dedicates to use his story to teach others about the goodness of God in verse 13. He dedicates to use his voice to sing for God in verse 14. He dedicates to use his mouth to publicly proclaim God's praise in verse 15. He dedicates to use his kingdom and his riches to glorify God and bring him sacrifices in verses 18 and 19. David makes a plan and a commitment to give himself entirely to God, to be used as God's vessel to bring God the most glory. This commitment to use his entire self as a sacrifice shows that the true change in the inward self, repentance, has actually taken firm hold in David's heart. He is committed to walk in right conduct in God's presence. If you today are far from God, if you have sin in your life that has remained unconfessed, if you have let godly ungodly treasures in your heart point you away from Christ, I want to invite you to learn from David. Even though his sin was grave, it did not lead him to the grave. If you think that you are beyond salvation, that God could never possibly forgive what you've done, I think the story of David was recorded from history for your benefit. The idea that God could never forgive egregious sins is simply not who the Bible presents. Going back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we actually get to see God's response to David's repentance, God's response to this psalm. Uh, in that chapter, David declares, uh, I have sinned against the Lord, to which the prophet Nathan replies, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. This isn't a putting away of God ignoring the sin or covering up or sweeping it under the rug. Instead, this is God removing that sin, nailing it to the cross with Christ, and separating our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's the whole point of Jesus' sacrifice, to bring us back into relationship with God. That dirty, rotten sin you've been carrying on your back, the guilt and weight that shames you, the secret sin that you haven't confessed, that burden is already paid for in full. There remains nothing more to do but to confess and to repent. Let go of that sin and turn back to the Father who loves you and wants you to come home. 1 John 1.9 is one of my favorite verses, and it promises that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We don't have to impress God. We don't have to get our lives together before we come to him. He takes us as we are and just wants us to come home. If that's you today, if you want to take that step for the first time to enter into God's covenant of said to become part of his people and experience the mercy, forgiveness, and loving kindness of relationship with God, I invite you to pray with me a prayer like this. God, I know my sin. I know my transgression. 
and it's always before me. I've carried the weight of guilt. I've carried the weight of shame for a long time, and I've tried to get rid of it, but I know that I can't. Have mercy on me, God. Adopt me into your family. Make me part of that covenant relationship, um, and show loving kindness to me. Show forgiveness to me. Um, God, I can't do anything on my own. I can't bring anything to the table, uh, but I pray that you would uh, change my inward spirit, change my inward person to treasure you, to desire you, to be clean from sin, uh, and to become a new person. Um, King Jesus, uh, I would like to make you the Lord of my life. I would like to follow in obedience to what you have to say, and I'd like to dedicate my whole self to following you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, you are in God's has said, you are in God's family. You are part of that covenant oath. You have a relationship with Christ. Uh, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, uh, we'd love to welcome you to the family. Uh, I'll be in the back after service. Uh, Julie will also be back there. Rachel will be back there. Talk to someone. Uh, if you're watching online, talk to whoever sent you this link to watch. Uh, but talk to someone because that's how you get to be part of the family. Being part of the family isn't about being alone. It's about being with people. But for others of us, uh, we are like David. We're already members of God's covenant of Hesed, already part of God's family. Um, but there's still sin in our lives that we need to confess, that we need to repent of. Uh, if that's you, and you want to take this time to realign yourself with Christ, uh, I want to invite you to pray, but slightly different. Um, so normally we end with a prayer of discipleship. I'll pray something from the stage out loud. You guys follow along quietly. Uh, but rather than following me in a prayer, uh, I want to invite you to pray through Psalm 51 and allow the words to become your own. Whether that just means straight reading through the entire psalm uh, and then meditating on it, or whether that means using it as a model for prayer, uh, whatever that means, uh, take some time and let this prayer become your own. Uh, I'm going to give us uh, a few minutes, uh, and then after an appropriate amount of time has passed, uh, I'll close this out with a benediction. Uh, but just take some time to read through Psalm and let the words become your own prayer. <laughs>